With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags, posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, Colonel Caroline Pogge, I'm currently the Civil Affairs Planning Team Chief with UCRF G39 over here in Wiesbaden, Germany on a mobilization for the past, I guess we're about seven months in of our nine month tour. And, and you know, they said, go to Germany, it'll be great. It'll be a pretty easy tour. And then allies refuge happened. So here today with a few folks, we've got quite a few. I'm gonna have them do very quick, brief introductions of who they are, what agency they uh, work with and how they became involved in allies refuge. Now allies welcome back in the States. And so I'm going to turn it over in order. And we've got some DOD, we've got Department of State, and we also have some of our NGO partners. So uh, Sue Grayler, do you want to start? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Major Susan Grayler. I'm with the Civil Affairs, Civil Affairs Officer with the 361st Civil Affairs Brigade, which is a reserve civil affairs organization right here in Kaiserslautern, Germany. My civilian job, I work for DLA. Defense Logistics Agency right here. And so I was able to be ready and available as soon as we got word that Operation Allies Refuge needed civilian civil affairs support. Our brigade commander identified early on when this mission was immediately kicking off here at the Ramstein Air Force Base that we have qualified civil affairs soldiers here in the immediate area and we were available to begin helping right away. They started with AGR staff, the full-time staff, They were responding within 72 hours uh, right on the ground, and then they saw the need and they brought on about 18 of us eventually, but we integrated right away. I started attending meetings with the Department of State every morning and then just jumping in and working with the Air Force and the Army, but primarily uh, working with the Air Force because they don't have civil affairs assets and they're not aware of the capabilities, so it was really key to identify the leaders and inform them and then just work all the way down to the ground level on letting them know the capability that civil affairs brings to this type of emergency uh, situation. Department of State and the USAID already knew our capabilities and they were very welcoming and I believe that we all worked together and made a great team to make this a successful mission. And pending any questions right now, that's my introduction. Thanks, Sue. We're going to move over to Dee Swanier from American Red Cross, who is definitely the hero of early activities here in Germany. So, Dee. Thank you, Caroline. So, I'm Dee Swanier. I'm the executive director for the American Red Cross European Theater. Well, first, I'm going to start by a quote from Christopher yesterday that said, NCOs are the backbone of civil affairs. And I have to echo that because I received my phone call from Master Sergeant Lloyd that said, um, hey D, what, what do you have to bring to the fight? And once I told him that we had equipment and supplies pre-staged down in the Ramstein area, he said, where is it and how can we help? He got to work and brought our supplies to Ramstein and we were able to start our mission within 12 hours and we were on the ground and ready to start our mission. So with that, we were able to set up. I have a station there, there at Ramstein Air Base. And once our supplies arrived, I think they were picked up at three o'clock in the morning and our team was on the ground at eight that morning. And we set up our comfort kits, our baby diapers, and we were ready to hit the ground running. So I must give out kudos to Caroline and to Master Sergeant Lloyd because civil affairs, I have to say, understood the mission and knew that they needed to call the Red Cross. And from there, we began our work. So that is my introduction, and I'll turn it over to the next speaker. Thanks, Dee. Um, We're going to switch over to Spirit of America, who I know many of us have worked with across the globe. And so, Colleen, if you could do a quick intro. 
Hi, good evening, everyone. I'm Colleen Denny with Spirit of America. Um, for those who don't know, Spirit of America is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we have a worldwide MOU with Department of Defense that was signed in 2018, which gives us the legal mandate to work alongside deployed troops and diplomats to fill gaps and help you all achieve your missions with private money to move at the speed of relevance. We started receiving needs identified on 25 August by the 21st TSC CMOC, and uh, within a week and a half, we were able to provide support for hygiene kits and blankets for 5,000 individuals. Simultaneously in Kosovo, we were receiving needs identified by the troops at Camp Bonsteel there. The next month in mid-September, we also uh, provided support covering baby items, shower shoes, formula, breastfeeding pumps, diaper rash cream, all the things that USG funding couldn't purchase or was running into contracting issues or couldn't purchase quickly enough. Simultaneously, we were able to get a charter flight out of Kabul of 121 Afghan partners to Albania, which is where I'm calling in from now. So small organization of 22 people, but we were able to surge. And while I was kind of tied to Albania, we were able to support both Ramstein and Bond Steel uh, remotely. And uh, just uh, thank you all for inviting me here today. Over. Thanks, Colleen. I'm going to switch over to the CA side of it again. And uh, Captain Josh Black, who's one of our four deployed CA team leaders, ended up in the mix of it in one of our remote sites. So, Josh. Good afternoon or good evening here. My name is Captain Josh Black. I was deployed with 415th Civil Affairs Battalion in support of Operation Atlantic Resolve. I was OPCON at 21st TSC and was 21st TSC's Civil Affairs Support to Camp Leo, which is on Camp Bonsteel. I was actually diverted from my original mission, which was covering uh, 21st TSC CAO in the Balkans and was actually planning 21st TSC's uh, civil affairs response to Albanian and uh, Macedonian wildfires. So kind of a, a little bit of a flip on the mission there, but yeah, I got on ground. There was already some prep work done and uh, met with uh, Department of State, uh, Gina, who you'll hear from, Billy. I uh, also worked with, uh, was on calls with Colleen. They're even offering to uh, drive across the border from Albania to Kosovo overnight to get us stuff. Thankfully, we didn't need to uh, execute that, but uh, we, you know, we're pretty much constantly calling them and organizing uh, to try and get things that uh, that we needed or worried we weren't able to get in a timely manner. This is really my first experience with CA doing this kind of stuff, so it was uh, pretty eye-opening and it was a really great experience. Depending on questions. Thanks, Josh. We're going to move over to the Department of State folks. We have uh, both in theater and back in D.C. So, Tyler, can you launch it for your team? Sure. Good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Tyler Waterhouse, and I am an AGR civil affairs officer currently on detail to the Department of State Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration on a one year fellowship tour. So I've been working this as the single and one military advisor that PRM as a bureau has. Uh, we quickly learned that that was not going to be enough military advisors when the evacuation of our Afghani allies kicked off. So fortunately, we've got a lot of other good team members here that you're going to meet that were able to step up and help us fill a lot of the gaps as we work this operation from originally it was going to be just a controlled movement of those that were applying for SIVs, those that worked for us, all the way to uh, you know a non-combatant evacuation. I'll turn it over to the rest of the team. Thanks, Josh, can you uh, pick it up from there? Yeah, absolutely. Good uh, afternoon, good evening, everybody. My name is Joshua Mader. I am the Senior Economic Sanctions Policy Coordinator for the U.S. Department of State in my daytime job, but had the pleasure of working with Tyler and the family over in the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration for a little over a month on this particular operation. I'm a former CA officer myself, and so I think the uh, PRM Bureau recognized they needed some help with translation and to give Tyler some backup. So they asked me to come over there and provide supporting fires for him. So it's great to actually put a face to a lot of the names that I've been working with over the last couple of months, and I'm looking forward to this session. Thanks, Josh. I was just thinking the same. I don't know what all of you look like till tonight. So this is kind of awesome. Uh, Gina, you are in theater department of state. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, good evening. I'm Gina Kasem. Wonderful to meet everybody uh, by face. I am uh, currently in Budapest. Uh, I am the first person I think who's speaking who has zero military experience. Uh, and so it was an amazing experience to get out to Kosovo and one of the, the biggest 
parts of working, the greatest parts of working with CI was uh, get, helping get introduced to that fantastic experience uh, and have that translation go on live for me in person. Um, I was in a Camp Bonsteel, Camp Leah, as Josh had um, from before, from the setup, about five days before any Afghans arrived. Through the first month of the Afghans arriving and being on the ground, I returned to my day job in Budapest, where I also have nothing to do with this. I'm a regional environment science, technology, and health officer. I didn't last very long, and I went right back to su continue supporting Leah uh, during, during some more transitions and uh, looking forward to heading back out uh, again. And last but not least, Master and Larry Lloyd, who is the three nines OPT lead for our part of the adventure in this. So, Larry. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. So I'll definitely echo what several other folks said. It's it's great to see so many faces and what really is your brothers and sisters and what was a pretty fierce battle for the first month. So I can't thank enough for all the other folks that are on here. So from my perspective, along with Colonel Pogi, we were part of what is United States Army Europe's new entity, a civil affairs planning team. So we were the first rotation, heck of a way to kick off your first rotation as a new FTN in theater, I guess. Uh, we were sent here actually mainly to work on deterring Russian malign influence and aggression as part of competition. And um, I actually filled in at the G35 here at USRAP on the planning side because everyone else was, of course, on leave in the cell. And I said, okay, well, I'll go sit on the Afghan Civ long-term planning development that started in July of this year, actually, well before Kabul fell and the country fell. So we were working, looking at multiple sites all across Europe. State was leading the charge on talking to other allies and partners who might be some of these long-term sites, having that discussion. We were planning for, I think we were looking at, at some points up to 18 different sites across the theater, thinking, hey, this is gonna be sort of a slow development over time and we'll have a trickle. And then the events of mid-August kicked off, right? And so as the, the fact that I just happened to be the guy that was already involved in the planning, um, then had to move from that long-term QOPs planning to your crisis action planning element, and then being the, the CA voice as far as USRAP's overall Army plan development was occurring. So I think maybe two major points I will move through with this and then kick it over for the, the greater question and answers is one, you know, the major theme of this symposium for the association is building a network. I think Colonel Pogge and I would easily testify that that network development and connection, the most important place to start that is internal to the army. There is a lot of people in the army that says, well, that's a CA thing. I don't really know what that is, but that's something CA does. And I think if they don't have a good understanding, a good voice of what CA can actually bring to the fight, what CA's limitations are, but then also what our abilities are, that's something we have to work through. You also have to work internally across several different G-shops to figure out, okay, we're having this issue, who's the entity within the army that can fix this? So the building the network important part is internally to the army itself. Then when you turn around and you go outside, I mean, D, D is a lifesaver literally through this and many entities. The army itself had some limitations on authorities and permissions of who we can engage with. And some of that building the network is knowing, hey, I don't have the ability to talk to X organization or X person, but does one of my partners have the ability to do that? So D was definitely the point of the spear as being that NGO entity that was, that was here in theater already, had a lot of these connections already built. And she could tell me, hey, we can't source this, but I think I know somebody that does. Can I go ask them? And move on from there. So I think with that, I'll end. But yeah, that's the key part of not building network eternally to the army, then knowing the network that you touch, who they end up touching and can be that force multiplier for you. That's it. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, Tyler, I'm going to kick the first question I see in the chat here asking about preparations and contingencies for an influx of Afghans that may come in the coming months. Are you able to talk a little bit about how Department of State is planning for what we call the cowboy flights or other folks that are coming through potentially theater or directly CONUS? Over. Yeah, so that is still one of the big topics of the discussion that's going on here in Washington, D.C. with a lot of the senior leadership, uh, particularly like in National Security Council and all the way up to the White House. Uh, how are we going to manage that? What is the process going to be? And there, there are no easy answers, right? If there was an easy answer, we would just, you know, do it. So really having to leverage all the assets that the interagency has from, let's say, uh, DOD uh, being able to use Camp Asalia in Qatar or Camp Bonsteel in Kosovo for an extended period of time, all the way to here in the United States, uh, having Afghan people on 
bases here in the US for an extended period of time and just looking at how do we balance all of those things in order to best support those allies that stood with us, you know, through the last 20 years. Over. Thanks. If anybody has any questions, please feel free uh, if you haven't been in the other ones to either raise your hand or drop a question in the chat. But I'm going to open with one question while we I'm sure someone will pop in for a sec there. Is there is there anything if you guys could go back to August, if there's one thing you wish you had done differently or one thing that you're glad happened the way it happened, uh, could you share what that might be? Sure, I, I can kick that off uh, since I, I think I worked this since well before August even. I will say that initially when this was going to be a controlled effort moving out the SIV applicants, we were able to get everybody in the interagency from the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs, all the way down to the Army elements that were going to be boots on the ground in Qatar. We were able to get everybody on the same call and start communicating as flat as possible to be able to share information. And that included bringing in our UN partners with IOM, you know, right away. You know, initially we're the military, everybody likes to do everything on the high side. And, you know, we were able to say, hey, we got to bring this down to the low side because we need to really coordinate and level the bubbles with everybody that is, you know, contributing to this effort. So for us, with CENTCOM, we were able to do that because we had a little bit of lead up time. Uh, unfortunately, with UCOM, they just kind of got thrown in the mix when it turned into the non-combatant evacuation. So we didn't really have that lead time to build up and, you know, get those relationships, even if they are just email and phone call relationships. We didn't have a, a lot of time to build those up. So I wish we, we would have had more time for the Europe team to be able to build those relationships prior to the incident kicking off. Over. I just have one comment, and just to introduce myself, my name is Colonel Alan McEwen. I'm the, the Civil Affairs Division Chief at, at Central Command. You know, we had started back in June tabletop exercises on, on how this deliberate uh, SIV movement would, would go. And as we all know, it, it kind of went south pretty fast. Speaking with that forum, and just to kind of echo what, uh, what Tyler was saying, we had started both OCONUS calls and CONUS calls on how the refugee flow was gonna be going into NORTHCOM. So NORTHCOM and CENTCOM uh, participated in calls. Um, we struggled at the front end on, at CENTCOM on the classification. A lot of that had to do with the NEO. And finally, uh, we brought that to uh, General McKenzie, uh, the commander, and he said, let's go all on class. And then we, we were able to tie in everyone from the joint staff, OSD, Department of State, uh, DSCA, all the relevant parties, including lawyers, to be able to talk through this, this absolutely complex operation. And again, you know, seeing someone like Captain Black on here talking about the tactical aspects of this is really enlightening because at the stratosphere, we are trying to figure out how to get $150 million or $500 million through Congress on ODACA doing policy letters and try to, how do we get that to be used for this incident? And can we even use it on U.S. soil? All those things were done through numerous meetings and calls on class with 152 participants on these calls that we were doing nightly. And that included calls with DepSecDef, the chairman, and, and all the way through this to try to nail down these policies. And there were some things that we did right. And there were some things that we did after these after action reviews especially with money in a DACA that we did absolutely wrong versus sending money to the combatant command versus sending it directly to the services. And so things like that, that you just don't see on the ground. And, and the reason why we needed Red Cross and we needed IOM and we needed Spirit of America and all these people to come in there on the front end is because of how a lot of these uh, conflicts that we had at the joint staff or at OSD between the different departments that we struggle with on the front end but if you really think about it, to, to be able to make a lot of this happen in such a short amount of time, and then to hear about some of the successes on the ground is, is really, truly remarkable. So I'll just leave it there. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I kind of got a two-part. Uh, one of them is going to be on the same theme. Uh, the first is I really wish I had a better understanding coming into this about how the like, Army logistics works. A lot of the issues we had were because essentially on Camp Bonsteel, we had to recreate pretty much from scratch all these processes that uh, required to get things onto Camp Bonsteel. 
because we just order them the way they're ordered now. We had to create a new, new separate parallel system. Everything from medicine is not typically offered to for uh, field hospitals uh, to getting food. All that kind of stuff had to be started from scratch. And uh, I just had no concept going in what any of that meant, how to do any of that. And pretty much it was just uh, Gina and I painfully pulling threads and where they where they led to get the right answers. Uh, the second kind of goes into the uh, coordination piece. I had no idea. I think I signed into AIM once and had forgotten it. And I had uh, no idea how to like share anything with uh, interagency parts because I couldn't get anything from teams. We couldn't do teams invites. We couldn't move documents that had any kind of uh, information on them. So uh, I had to kind of figure out the help from USERAF, even did that APAN was used for this kind of thing. And by the time I actually got access to APAN again, unlocked my account, the need was gone. So that kind of uh, me flat-footed on the ground. Thanks, Josh. Sue, you had something to add? Yes, I just wanted to go along that theme of the funding and the issues with funding. We understand here on the ground, just to get the support and get approval, uh, for reservists was extremely difficult. There's active duty civil affairs elements in Europe. And if planning was for me to learn, I mean, and I knew there was planning going on ahead of time, but perhaps in the future, if some type of uh, another emergent crisis occurs, the idea to start to plan in civil affairs assets at the tactical level on the ground where these types of people needing uh, crisis care are going to land and planning that in advance would probably be beneficial. I know there's a like flash to bang, but uh, the reserve orders process is very cumbersome. There was a limited number of civil affairs assets at the 21st Theater Sustainment Command G9. They were smart enough to alert the reserve assets here. We only had a few, like I said, active uh, guard reserve full-time staff that were pulled away to do this. And then some of us started, but it, it took almost in reality, 12 to 14 days to actually get the reservist on the right type of orders. If we could have crossed colors of money and allowed us to use annual training dollars to start the mission. But I understand that color of money really played a hindrance in getting the reservist in the fight right away. And in the beginning, it is the critical time to have those on the ground because military personnel that are not attuned to dealing with displaced persons or refugee, I know they were evacuees, but all those skill sets that the civil affairs personnel were trained on, it was a huge uh, gap here at Ramstein. The Air Force personnel and the Department of State are, are worrying about the ceiling, the sky, all those big, big, big ticket items. And the airmen and the officers, the Air, Air Force officers on the ground that are used to dealing with just cargo, cargo in, cargo out. And they really needed the benefit of us on the ground to help them make it. These are people and they're human and they're not they're not prisoners and there's nothing wrong with them. They're in a crisis. And so once we were able to really get on the ground and bring that the, the reality to the lowest level, um, we were able to start just doing those basic civil affairs tasks and it, and it made a huge difference. Additionally, I just wanted to say that the key is that you got to start planning ahead on, on, on any of those crisis situations at the tactical level to some degree, because, you know, it was just overwhelming for the people here that had no training over. Thanks, Sue. Josh Mater. And then, uh, so Larry, Amelia, and Gina, I got y'all, the, the teacher in me is watching the hand raises there. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. I know there are two Joshes, so it gets complicated. First, I would really like to just footstop uh, something that Colonel McEwen said in that I think it's easy to kind of pick apart the things that didn't go well, but we can't forget to recognize just the, I mean, incredible effort and success you know, that went into this mission. And really, I mean, there, there are no elements or no other country in the world that could pull off something like this. And so to not recognize the effort that was put in by our DED counterparts and, and State Department and other interagency counterparts on this operation writ large, I think would be a real disservice. And so I do want to recognize that. I think it, additionally, I'd like to, you know, just kind of echo some of the comments that were made on the authorities piece and the funding piece. One, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have CA representation and the CA voice in organizations like the State Department for, you know, as much as it was a challenge to ensure that translation between 
joint staff from the Pentagon, OSD, you know, that filtered down appropriately and accurately through the COCOMs, TSC, you know, down to, you know, Josh Black and his team on the ground, right, and Bond Steel as an example. It's equally important to ensure that the interagency colleagues are speaking the same lingo. And so the role that Tyler and his colleagues play in communicating with, you know, the assistant secretaries and the deputy assistant secretaries within PRM and the European Bureau and others is just vitally important and, and really being able to translate that. And, you know, Josh Black raised a good point about just the Army logistics piece and, and having come from, you know, the Army Sustainment Command world in, in a former life, I can tell you that nobody in the State Department or very few understand what that process is. And so, again, having somebody with the ability to translate, you know, what that practically means on the ground, what the decisions that are being talked about here in D.C. will actually mean for the folks uh, on the ground is just is just critically important. And then I think within the DOD framework itself, being able to accurately and timely translate decisions, whether it's on authorities, whether it's on funding, whether it's on contracting, uh, you know, down from the COCOM or higher you know, through those middle layers to the tactical level folks that are actually on the ground doing the work is critically important. And I know it's easier said than done, and there's always room for improvement, you know, but I think, you know, figuring out how to get the operational folks and the lawyers speaking the same language at all levels uh, is something that, that we can certainly learn from this exercise and in previous exercises and continue to refine. Thanks, Josh. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. Something for everyone. The world traveler, the civil engager, the warrior diplomat. We got t-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs, from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Repping the present teams of the global war on terror, with items for citizen soldiers of use of KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. Collections include suits and shoots for fans of jumping out of airplanes and looking good, Pineland to remember your trip to the People's Republic, and Lewis and Clark to honor the two party animals who popularized huge DTS vouchers. You want Pipox? We got Pipox. New items all the time. Custom flags, stickers, and shirts? Send us an email. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at LC38Brand or contact us at info at LC38Brand.com. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. Hi, and welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Hi, good afternoon, good evening. Emilia Maremnias from Geneva. And um, first of all, I want to say thank you to everybody who's doing and who's working on this incredible operation. I mean, it's it's a massive undertaking. I've been on the other side, been in Kabul and worked on this situation in 2015. So thank you very much for everyone for their service and for their sacrifice and then for their time. I really what Major Grayler was speaking about kind of touched me, <laughs> but but most recently was what Joshua mentioned and, and what I was actually basing my question about is about the sort of communication between operations to strategic level. How do you get that message from what's happening on the ground? You know, how do you get it up? Is that communication open? And that what are the sort of avenues for that kind of feedback to the strategic level? so that you get the funding and so that you get the, the actual, well, the capabilities on the ground, trained for uh, staff, et cetera. I just wanted to say that 
yeah, I wondered if this was an observation that um, the people who were earlier on the call from USAID are not on this call. And I was wondering if that somehow reflects about how the operations and the strategic actually talk to each other, that when we have a symposium, a platform like this, not everybody is able to attend. Does anyone on the panel want to take a stab at that one? I'll kick off real quick, ma'am, just to say, I mean, you, you certainly know this as well as I do. I think what USRAF, um, United States Army Europe's leadership would tell you is the best reporting they've gotten day in, day out, most informative reporting has been from CA. And that's a credit to the folks on the ground because it's, you know, whether it's Major Grayler or Captain Blacks, you know, their tactical level reporting was making it all the way to the G3 and the operational side and raising questions U.S. Army wide, right? So I think there's a lot of, I think CA has that inherent need and desire to want to communicate and know to want to over communicate on the same token. So I think, again, they may not have always gotten back to, to get into Captain Black or Major Grayler that the reports were making it there where they were getting read at very high levels and then being disseminated from that. I would also say, I think just because of the nature of us as reservists also understand how some of these other organizations work, right? Like Colonel Pogge, I know, has, has worked for the Department of State. I worked for the American Red Cross for three years. So some of us just had that inherent knowledge of, oh, this is what the American Red Cross does, right? So I already know how to talk some of this language and cross-communicate with it. So that's certainly not only the CA benefit, but also the CA reservist benefit of that skill set that we bring to Army operations. Thanks, Larry. Gina, I'm going to go to you next. I just wanted to start by saying, you know, in all of the wins that we had, it was it was having such amazing team. I mean, everybody who was there, everybody working, no matter where they were uh, in Germany or in Washington or out in the lily pad sites, you know, came with such passion. And it was it was that passion. We wanted to do it. We wanted to do it right. Uh, and the crazier it got, the more dedicated I think we all became. And that just it made a world of difference. Right. And we all sat together. The problems just kept coming at us. You just couldn't stop making up what was happening. But we we would sit down and say, is this like, what is the problem? And is it the right problem? You know, and looking at, you're all talking about the authorities and, you know, the color of money and, and trying to figure that out. And then when we got to the question of what the actual right problem is that we needed to tackle, is everyone in the room who needs to tackle that that problem and oftentimes it wasn't. And so then, you know, getting all the stakeholders together and uh, at the top, Tyler, you talked about the calls that you had with CENTCOM and, and CONUS back in, in the summer. And by the time it made it to UCOM and we were able to really get all the players on the call, it made such a world of difference. And we started to see that also in Kosovo where we were, the more people we brought in, the more people at the table, uh, the quicker we could get we could get things resolved. The communication piece was just incredible. Even when we're sitting next to each other, I was I was laughing when when Josh, uh, Captain Black was talking about how we couldn't get our team's channels to work. We, we, we tried every which way to be able to share information. We're sitting next to each other and we were just constantly reinventing the wheel, which was just something we logistically should didn't have to work on uh, when, we're, when we're together, but something that we did uh, to, to the point of, of his sit reps, which were which were phenomenal. And everybody in the operation was doing sit reps. We're all trying to feed up information. We're all trying to get to the right policymakers to get the right policy decisions to help us operationalize on the ground. And so uh, we worked really closely in sharing our sit reps, not just when they came out, but also as we were developing them, like, hey, we're going to we're going to focus on this piece. Is this is this the right way that that we need to focus on? Is this how you saw what happened today? Is this the mood that you're capturing, you know, or is there a different thing we should be capturing as well? And that was really helpful going up because we were we were really able to amplify the message going up and, and out from from the ground. Yeah, thanks, Gina. I, I do think I can delete like half of my WhatsApp conversations because they seem to all be related to uh, this effort. So thankfully, it's starting to slow down. Alan, you had something to add? Yeah, I just want to speak to uh, to two items, one from earlier comments from Sue, uh, as well as uh, Josh. And, and, and this is from a CENTCOM lens from planning, a planning piece of this. And, and I know you guys are at the bottom of the tornado when when these kind of operations comes through i just want to kind of walk you through just a little bit about some of the things that, that we did and how it kind of ties to this whole conference of, of the, like, these two days first of all there's always a push to get the right assets at the right place what i found at CENTCOM was there were two things that were going on simultaneously one there was the neo that we were worried about possibly happening and the other was the deliberate movement of uh of sivs 
those two became conflicted. So at, this, at the same time, we're working with the 18th Airborne Corps to do an airfield seizure of Bagram. The same time we're working, you know, we're making this assumption Department of State is going to be continued. They're going to have their embassy open. They're going to continue to push people through their deliberate withdrawal. And then at, at some point it's, okay, now we have to worry about the security issues. So we have a crisis response standing task force ready to go within the theater. What they don't have is organic civil affairs. They, they loan a little bit from NAFCENT that, that may you know, advise them, but they don't have that. So on the orders process, whether it was the NEO or the SIB movement, we have within there, we have the immediate response force, the IRF, that we have a civil affairs company, active duty, ready to go anywhere for 72 hours. The decision to use them versus in Haiti was, it was one of these kind of things that we juggle. So that all that planning kind of goes into effect. With that, then we had follow-on forces with Compo 3 ready to go on the reserve component side. Within, and we had planned, I think, for 90 days for them to backfill and then stay on for six months. And we all know that that, that, didn't, that didn't come to um, fruition. But what's most important about this whole process, much like what you did at UCOM, we did at CENTCOM. So within my uh, team, I have 25 in my team. 11 of those are, are Army reservists that come in on a year rotation. And, and we had one up in, in D.C. We deployed one to the D- Department of State ACTF immediately. And that was a transfer over from USAID or LNO there, who just, oh, by the way, happened to do for the full-time job was a state PRM employee, government service employee. So that was pretty nice to have Chris Upchurch there because he was an ace in the hole, who then ended up going over to Qatar and, and acting as that voice with IOM to start getting that, that those approval processes through for Doc Spenner. The second thing is, is we backfilled him with another rever- reservist up in ICTF, or ACTF. We had three deployers that went to Bahrain as part of that crisis response. And then we had one that went to HKIA. So in a matter of a few weeks, we had Army reservists that were at CENTCOM deployed all over the globe. And that talks about the partnership of between active component and at the whole time waiting for SOC Center or for uh, uh, SOCOM to deploy forces to, to support and, and looking at other lily pads. So I just tell you that those are in the plans, but that timeline sometimes gets shorted, um, at least from the CENTCOM lens. You know, we ended up sending SOCOM over to LUD, but I think it was a, a day late and a dollar short. And then just talking real quickly to, to Josh, some of the comments you made about the planning between the interagency. I think there's a, some, some good dialogue that went in between DOD, you know, Maine and HH, uh, HST with Maine State. I think that uh, there were a bit of food fights between USAID and BHA trying to figure out how they, you know, they're supposed to be the experts at this. PRM deferred this to IOM to kind of be their lead. And, and I can see friction uh, between our BHA and USAID reps along with, with how that, that, that delineation was going with the state PRM. And then I'll just add this is that um, I think that, that, you know, having poll ads here at CENTCOM was critical to tying in those relationships. So much like we have Tyler uh, doing a mill ad type job, but having those poll ads here at CENTCOM to bring us the right connections, not as staff action officers, that's not their job, but to connect that and be able to relay that information was extremely helpful. I would submit, though, that, that we didn't have uh, HST, DOD, on those TTXs that we had in June, the right people participating because you have an under-resourced bureau like PRM that was struggling for manpower. It doesn't have the deployability to get out to all these different lily pads immediately to start those processes. And that's a challenge. And it's something that we have to take into account moving forward. And I'll leave it, I'll leave it there for comment. Yeah, no, Alan, I think that's, that's an interesting point. It's interesting as you try and see how even here where Master and Lloyd was our OPT lead and trying to make sure that the, the equities for CA were brought into the planning process. I think uh, actually, it's funny you mentioned Chris Upchurch. Somehow I got news that he existed and I, I picked up the phone and we connected early on. And I was like, hey, what are you guys doing down there so we can figure out what we're supposed to be doing up here? You guys were ahead of us in, in many ways, a few weeks ahead of some of the timelines. And so having, having that understanding of where the raft can get put into play, the, the rotational forces, and, and, and I think it's a key point that you bring up of 
everybody's got to figure out what those timelines are. And to Chris Stockel's question over should Compo3 have a quicker deployment, for those of you that didn't see his comment, the question is the, uh, there's a there's a thought that the 83rd is, is going to be cut. We actually just had some ability to comment on that. The 83rd CA forces that are the conventional support uh, to in the active duty force. I, for one, this is my personal opinion. I think that's a really bad idea. The 83rd has an ability to be able to come to the fight much faster than Compo 3 can. And so we used RAF forces, it sounds like, in most of the theater. So CENTCOM and UCOM both used people we had in theater that happened to be. In our case, we've got some 83rd folks and we have some folks from 353 CA command that were here and able to get into play. And as Major Grayler described, getting orders for her ADOS team from the 361, and these are CA soldiers who live and work here in theater, still took us two weeks. And so I'm not sure we could go any faster than that, getting folks on the appropriate set of orders. So I think that's one of those things that as a proponent, we really need to tell the powers that be, is getting rid of the 83rd really worth the value that they think they're gaining from that? Because I think overall, it, it may be a, a detriment to our overall capability. So that's just a, just a, my opinion on that one. But yeah, interesting questions uh, as, it, as it goes. Amelia, so, you had, well, oh, go ahead, Josh Matter. I'm, I'm sorry, Amelia, I didn't mean to, to jump in front of you. I just wanted to, to comment on something that Alan had said about the poll ads. You know, there's no poll ad is alike, and I think that there's there isn't uniformity in terms of you know the roles that the poll ad plays across the UCOMs, and so I think having the relationships established, especially in some of the more functional spaces between state DoD and some of the other interagency players, is going to be critical. You know, moving forward as these exercises you know continue, I think certainly CENTCOM is the gold standard in terms of the generally anyway in terms of the poll ads functions and and kind of coordinating that role. I'm not sure though, and you're just airing our dirty laundry, I'm not sure that we had the same level of support at the UCOM, UCOM space from the poll app early on in, in the process. So just a lesson learned there. No, great point. Amelia, you had a follow-up comment? Yes, thank you. And if, if I may just take a bit time of, of a very specific questions, that's to this one here related to the Red Cross work here. I'm um, another thing, also a uh, Red Cross uh, actor myself, and I'm wondering, why is American Red Cross specifically working in this space, considering that there is German Red Cross and I don't know who it is, if it's, if it's international uh, ICRC in, in Kosovo who is acting? Why is specifically America, uh, American Red Cross acting in this German space? And I'm just wondering if that would be somehow could be perceived as a little bit more of this unilateral approach and maybe insular having and an sort of uh, by you have also the German Red Cross presumably working with uh, Afghan refugees that German government um, lifted from Kabul. How do you reconcile that kind of overlap in an organization that's based on, on, on independence and unity and so forth? So the American Red Cross is congressionally mandated to be on military installations overseas. And so we're already here. And so we partnered with the German Red Cross in this mission. And so the German Red Cross did assist us during this uh, mission with the Afghans. Yeah, and I think it's also key uh, to highlight, D is very much underselling how much she did those first few weeks. We, we obviously didn't have as DOD some of the authorities to speak with some of the interagencies. I know Master Chardon Lloyd talked about earlier. And uh, so there were many times that we would send folks to D and say, hey, if you want to help, we'd love participation. We can't do it. But hey, here's this wonderful woman over in the Red Cross. And so D was literally the point person. Gosh, it seemed like for a couple of weeks there probably felt like years to you um, with all the different actors from around the world that were trying to help in this this conversation. So I don't know, D, if you want to talk a little bit more about that or how, how that piece came to play, because I know you were swamped. Right, actually. So we did work with Church of Latter-day Saints, who actually partnered with us, as well as the um, Kaiser Slaten military community actually helped us with tons of donations for this mission. And so we also partnered with Department of State, IOM. We worked with them as well. Um, we had 566 volunteers that actually donated 12,000 hours I had 12 paid staff for this mission, um, for this huge mission. And so anyone that, because people can't donate directly to the military, and so they donated directly to us 
to assist with this mission. And that's how we were able to sustain from the day of the mission until we actually ended the mission on the 25th. Like I said, that was a lifesaver because there were many things, especially as you try and look at the logistics Captain Black spoke about, trying to get things for um, pediatric and geriatric populations, not usually a, a group of people we work with. And so having folks like Spirit of America, Colleen's group being able to fast track some purchases and Dee and, and all of her team being able to bring in funneling in some of those agencies and aid opportunities was definitely a lifesaver that we, we would not have unraveled the uh, the red tape bureaucracy, whatever you want to call it, to get those things to the people that needed them in a quick manner. Right. And you have to understand, like in this process with, with the lily pads, we weren't even getting uh, approvals from countries to even land there you know, days before we had flights showing up and, or had, had negotiated what happens if somebody on the airfield needs to go to a local national hospital, things like that. I mean, the work that our, our diplomats did to, to nail down all these countries to, to pull whatever strings they had to do to allow us to, to get these people out was remarkable. But you have to understand it's this, you know, it would be wonderful to have a have a plan and a playbook on this. But when you have the Secretary of State flying out all over to try to do something, you know, the Department of Defense, everybody trying to just get us the access to do that or lay in contracts and things like that. I mean, it was really remarkable that this came together. I mean, I don't want to say as smoothly as it did, but as smoothly as it did, when you look at like where we were a week before the, the country fell. Yeah, I can, can I just say, absolutely, I don't want to be critical in any, and I'm not. I, I think that what you've done, achieved in terms of where the refugees, evacuees have landed is remarkable. And, and I absolutely salute you for all that work. I look forward to the other conversation we'll be having in the next session, though. Thanks, Amelia. Uh, Colleen and then Stanislava. Sure, thank you. Um, I think a major lesson learned, I'm a veteran, so I served for eight and a half years before I joined Spirit of America. And a major lesson is that no money moves faster than private sector money. It can be wired or Western Union in, in minutes. And so, uh, you know, that's why organizations outside the military exist to support your efforts, like American Red Cross with the amazing work they did, or like Spirit of America. That happens during rapid response activities like this was, and on the day-to-day -day missions that you all are carrying out, both in state and DOD. And back to Larry's point, you know, having that that network, both internal and external, is something uh, you never want to be trying to make a new friend during a crisis. <laughs> you always want to have that friend beforehand. So uh, debriefs like this afterwards and, you know, maintaining those relationships in the network while, while we're in steady state. We all know this, but important to, to reinforce uh, while, while we're uh, hot washing activities like this. No, it's a great point, Colleen. We're definitely uh, dusting off some phone books, I think, uh, across the group um, as we tried to, to figure out who we needed to call and how to get a hold of them. Uh, Stanislava, I think you are going to get our last question of the night. And then Tyler, I know you've got a wrap up comment too. Thanks very much to all of you for all of your great work and all this good news. I just have a quick question on the extent to which you considered or perhaps sort of rolled out any consultation with other militaries that are dealing with this sort of effort. I know that there was a lot of discussion around um, burden sharing, if you will, after the evacuation as to which NATO allies were going to, you know, take however many people and so forth. But in addition to sort of the overall strategic guidance on how civil military coordination is dealt with in the crisis response uh, between allies, did you potentially have even, you know, short consultations with here's how, considering where you, where you all are, here's how the Germans are doing this and there and there is they're absorbing some of these people in more as a lessons learned as we go exercise ally to ally. Sure. No, that's a great question. I'm going to tackle this one quickly, uh, just because we're going to get running short on time. But I also want to say, as we mentioned earlier, we have civil affairs teams throughout Europe right now operating, and many of the teams had these conversations with some of our NATO partners and allies, those that either were participating in various ways uh, or those that were considering participation. And I know uh, a few of the teams said, hey, we're, we're trying to figure out if they go to location X to support either the NATO operation or some other operation, how that was going to happen and what 
our teams had learned because they would talk to their buddies and say, Hey, I know Josh Black is working this issue. What did you do or what did you learn? Because I think I may have a team going down to support uh, something similar to it. And so uh, that conversation has happened and we've encouraged them to continue that, especially now as, as we get the ability to look back a little bit. And also times like this, where we're able to come together and, and just have a, a, a short hour, which would definitely flew by of just talking about what we've done and how we we've, we've learned from this and, and what we would do different or make sure we bring with us the next go around. So that's, that's an excellent question. And hopefully everyone continues to have those conversations with our partners and allies, as well as internal to our uh, American communities, whether it's internal to DOD or as suggested across our, our agencies. And Tyler, I think you are going to have the last comment. All right. Well, thank you. Well, I just wanted to, you know, kind of looking at this from just my little foxhole here, one thing going forward, what can we as civil affairs, you know, professionals do in in future, you know, conflicts or emergencies as stuff like this, you know, could arise. One thing we've noticed is the use of different funding streams, particularly with ODACA. And being that it is for the humanitarian efforts, as soon as you hear anybody says the word humanitarian in DOD land, they kind of look to the CA guys for, you know, input. So we as civil affairs professionals, we really need to understand some of these lines of funding and how they are used and what are some of the big, you know, red lines, like you cannot use funding for this, or it should be used funding for this. And I get it. We're not attorneys and we're not commanders. So we don't, you know, make those ultimate decisions, but being able to provide some immediate information to a commander or to a staff, uh, I think will be additional value added that we can provide the commands at critical times. Over. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. And with that, I know we've just got a few more minutes. So before uh, General Stockel pulls me uh, with the hook, I'm just going to say thank you to the panel for joining me tonight. And uh, obviously, thank you also for your efforts the last three months and in many cases beyond. And also, Alan, thank you for bringing the CENTCOM perspective in. That was uh, really great to hear some of our partners were uh, doing it uh, down the way there. So thanks, everybody, for joining tonight. I also want to do a shout out to our sponsors, both to the uh, symposiums, the Third Order Effects and Valkamir, for helping sponsor the symposium and bringing everybody together and allowing us this uh, free forum to be able to have these conversations that I think are so integral in creating these networks across our, our different agencies and amongst our different partners that we're going to end up seeing wherever we land with our operations, as, as we've, we've found very keenly this summer. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job.